fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so thus far we've talked about love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. And Jason talked about goodness last week. And so this week we get to take a look at a passage on faithfulness. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 18 this morning. That's where we'll be. We'll be in verses 35 through 43. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, I say it every week. Take that Bible as the church's gift to you. We're not going to hunt you down and demand your soulless payment. It's yours for free. Let me read this morning's passage on the front end, and we'll pray, and we'll jump in, and we'll get to work. It says this, beginning in Luke eighteen thirty-five. As he, Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Let's pray. God, I pray that the gospel would inform our response this morning, that we would get a deeper understanding of what it means that you have been faithful to us, what it means that we have, by your grace, experienced a collision with divinity in the person of Jesus, that you've given us hope, and that the power of the gospel now empowers our faithfulness to you. Help us not to get it backwards, Lord. I pray that everyone in this room, myself included, would be moved by this picture of Jesus encountering fallen humanity and bringing hope. God, would you do that by the power of your spirit in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So, maybe a little weird starting off this morning, to jump into a gospel narrative as you look at the virtue of faithfulness, right? For for many of us, we might think, well, why not go to one of the back end of of one of Paul's letters? Paul lays out the gospel in in many of his letters, and then on the back end, he he says, therefore, in light of, in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for you, live this way. Put off the old self, put on the new self, that uh, the gospel is meant to empower us to, to be a people who live for God's glory. And so we could easily go to the back half of one of Paul's letters and unpack what faithfulness actually looks like. But I think this morning's passage will be even more helpful to us, and I'll explain why in a minute. As we'll see in this morning's passage, faithfulness begins with God, not man. And the reality is this, we, we see God's faithfulness written across every page of Scripture, 
And so we don't have time for me to preach a sermon that goes from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. You wouldn't get to eat lunch today. And so to get you out of here by a reasonable time so that you can actually eat three meals today, we're going to camp out in the gospel according to Luke. Here's why. The story that we're about to dive into lays out the perfect ordering of how faith and faithfulness actually work. Faithfulness is a covenant word. It means unwavering loyalty, unwavering fidelity. The Bible teaches that you can't have loyalty or fidelity to God if you don't have faith in Christ. And faith in Christ is only possible because of God's faithfulness to us in sending Christ to die for us and making Christ known to us. So let me throw a graphic up on the screen that tries to simplify it as best I can. The idea is this, that it begins with God's faithfulness to us. It begins with God entering into our world because we can never claw our way into his presence and establishing this providential collision with divinity, which sets the stage for us to then respond as a people of faith in Jesus. And and as a result of our response to Christ in faith, we're now indwelt with the Holy Spirit, which empowers us to live a life of faithfulness to God. Does that make sense? And so as we look at Luke chapter 18, the beauty of the story of the blind beggar is that we get all of these moving parts. We see Jesus on the scene, a providential collision between a destitute man and the divine, God's faithfulness. And this collision between man and God presents an opportunity for a response of faith, as we'll see. And faith in Christ compels faithfulness to Christ as we'll see the passage unfold and move towards its end. And so if you pick up in Luke chapter 18, verse 35, it says this. As he, Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. All right, at this point in Luke's gospel, critical to note that Jesus has been spending much of his time in a rural area known as Galilee. So think farming and fishing villages. And he's now on his way to the city of Jerusalem where he will be mocked where he will be flogged, where he will ultimately be crucified. He's made this prediction three different times in Luke's gospel, uh, the third of which comes in the paragraph preceding this very story that we're in this morning. So Jesus has just made mention of his death and resurrection that will take place in the city of Jerusalem, and now he set his sights on moving toward Jerusalem. So already we see God's faithfulness to us on display in this passage. If Jesus doesn't turn his gaze toward Jerusalem... We're hopeless. If Jesus doesn't march his way toward the city in his own certain death, we're done for. The fact that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem is a declaration of God's faithfulness already in this morning's passage. Now, this is during a time of year where the the roads would be congested with travelers. It's the season of Passover, a time of celebration for the Jews. We've talked about this before. For some of you, this will be a refresher. Uh, If you don't know the story, as you finish out the book of Genesis, uh, you have God's people who are now migrating into Egypt because of a famine. And at first, the relationship between the Egyptians and the Israelites is cordial. But over the course of time, that relationship shifts and the Israelites find themselves uh, under Egyptian enslavement and oppression. And so in God's providence, he raises up a man named Moses to lead God's people out of Egypt. 
Moses and his brother end up in a battle of wills with Pharaoh, um, declaring, uh, let God's people go so that they can go and worship God in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, you want me to allow the Israelites to stop making bricks, which are used to build monuments to glorify me as deity, so that they can leave Egypt and go glorify another deity? Not going to happen. And so God, in order to demonstrate his power, brings a series of plagues upon Egypt, 10 to be exact, The plagues go from bad to worse, culminating in the 10th and final plague, the death of the firstborn. God says to Moses, I'm going to bring about redemption, and here's how it's going to go down. I want you to take a lamb, and not just any lamb, a lamb without blemish, because God is perfect, and thus he demands a perfect sacrifice. And God says, I want you to kill that lamb without blemish, and I want you to smear its blood on your front door. And the lamb is going to act as your substitute. The judgment is coming upon the land, and no one is exempt. It's either the blood of the lamb or the blood of your firstborn son. And the Israelites do as God commands. And that night, God strikes down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt, those uh, who don't have the blood of the lamb smeared on their doorpost. The Israelites are spared as death passes over them, hence the name Passover. They're ultimately redeemed from an Egyptian enslavement, and they go on to institute an annual celebration known as the Passover feast. Now, nothing is included in the Bible haphazardly. The Old Testament story of Passover is actually a setting of the stage for the coming of Jesus. In fact, Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. John describes Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Peter tells us we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That like the Israelites, judgment is coming upon the land and no one is exempt that we all deserve the death penalty. The wages of sin is death, Paul says. It's either us or the unblemished lamb of, Jesus, uh, of God, Jesus. This is the language of substitutionary atonement. Jesus died our death, bearing our sin in our place, bearing our punishment, bearing our penalty. He bled and died so that we, like the Israelites, could go free. As God saw the blood of the lamb on the door of the Israelites' homes and passed over them, so God sees the blood of the Lamb Jesus spilled out for you and passes over you in his grace. That's the gospel. Coming back to this morning's passage, this is a time of the year when the Jews would travel to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate this feast, the Passover feast. So we're talking the first century equivalent to I-75 on a holiday weekend, right? You've got these rest stops along the way, uh, that you, you plan to stop at, and, and uh, you're not the only one who's clued into the secret that this is a good stop. And so you find people in mass all stopping at the same exits. That's Jericho. Jericho, you could say, is a stop on the journey. It's a place for the kids to go to the restroom. It's a place to gas up the camel. It's a, it's a great place for beggars to hang out if they're looking for a handout. Here you have this blind beggar, this man who, due to his blindness, is likely without a job, maybe even homeless, certainly impoverished. He's destitute, and he's in need of a divine intervention, which is pretty convenient because divinity steps on the scene in this moment. Many commentators believe that this blind beggar was not the only one looking for a handout this day, that this was a great place to post up, kind of like you you see um, men and women in need of help. Uh, on the exit and entry ramps of the interstate at times. This was a good spot to post up. 
this blind man hears a crowd approaching and he asks, what, what's going on? This is not the typical day. And, and he's probably been there during the season of Passover and yet he knows there's something exponentially bigger than even the crowds that pass through at Passover going on in this moment. And some people within earshot tell him that Jesus of Nazareth is on the scene. And he immediately proceeds to make a fool of himself. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. If we're honest, if we were there that day, many of us would probably look at this guy like he had lost his mind, wouldn't we? Everybody look at the crazy, smelly, disheveled, homeless guy acting the fool. The only problem is the joke's on everyone except the crazy, disheveled, homeless guy in this moment. Remember, multitudes of people are passing through, passing through Jericho, passing by Jesus on their way to celebrate the Passover. The the very feast, the very celebration that's meant to point to who? Jesus. Most of them are oblivious to the fact that the Passover lamb is right in front of them. There's a lesson there, isn't there, for the busy box-checking religious types? Maybe you come in this morning. Maybe that's you. Maybe you go, man, yeah, I just find myself just constantly in, in, on this treadmill, just trying to run but getting nowhere, checking my boxes, doing all the do's, staying away from all the don'ts, and yet I'm, I'm missing this intimacy thing with Jesus altogether. It's very possible. Many in this crowd having eyes, yet a failure to see. Meanwhile, the guy with absolutely no eyesight whatsoever sees Jesus. And he responds the way anyone who's seen Jesus for who he truly is responds. He makes a complete fool of himself, and he just doesn't care. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In the midst of a crowd, people in front of him tell him to pipe down. To which he promptly responds by persistently making a fool of himself once again. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The words that come out of this man's mouth in this moment are highly, highly theological in nature. If you go back to the Old Testament, you remember the story of King David. David goes from shepherd boy to king of Israel. And when he becomes king, God establishes a covenant with David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is where we see that covenant. And he promises David an eternal throne. Says this in 2 Samuel 7 verse 16. And your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is a messianic promise. This ultimately is a promise that points to Jesus. How do we know? Well, for one thing, the author of Hebrews applies the words of this very chapter of the Old Testament to Jesus. But if you want to stay a little bit more in-house, we're in Luke's gospel account this morning. If you go back to the first chapter of Luke's gospel account, where we look at the foretelling of the birth of Jesus, the angel comes to Mary. Many of us are familiar with these words around the Christmas season. We oftentimes read them. The angel says this, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him, listen to this, the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. There's a king coming and his kingdom will have no end. God's people have been longing for this king to show up on the scene. 
in the midst of Roman oppression. Is he ever going to come? Where is he? And a disheveled, blind guy on the side of the road says, he's right there. King Jesus, son of David. It's startling if you really slow down and read it. How many of us, again, would look at this guy like he was absolutely nuts off of his rocker? Maybe not even based on what he said, just maybe on his appearance alone. The one man in the crowd who's seeing everything rightly, and he's physically blind. How many of us would have been in such a hurry to get to the Passover celebration in Jerusalem that we completely missed the Passover lamb right in front of our faces? Busy doing things for God and completely missing the presence of God in all of it. So very possible, especially here in the Bible Belt. This blind man on the side of the road makes a a very dangerous statement. you got to remember that this is during a time in history when Rome is in full power. The Persians have invented crucifixions. The Romans have perfected it to draw the, the maximum amount of pain and suffering out of a human being. You just don't say things like this. You declare, Caesar is Lord. Caesar is King. And a blind guy who can't even defend himself on the side of the road declares, there's a new king in town and he's far greater than Caesar. One commentator that I read this week made the statement that it's pretty crazy when you think about how God chose to make known his eternal kingship. If you're coming up with a marketing plan for a product or a cause... You're sitting around the the big table with with all of the executives. This is probably not the campaign that you go with. Okay, guys, here's what we're going to do to get the word out. We're going to go grab hold of one disheveled homeless guy, and we're going to have him yell it a couple times at the top of his voice. All right? Break. You know what happens when that's your campaign strategy? You lose your job. That's insanity. And yet that's exactly how God chooses to make known his eternal kingship in Jesus to the masses. A couple thousand years later, Jesus is worshipped by millions, maybe even billions. Why? Because the blind homeless guy is quite amazing? No, because Jesus is quite amazing. Verse 40, the story continues. And Jesus stopped and commanded him, this man, to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Can you imagine that? Jesus asking you, what what do you want me to do for you? How would you answer that question? I'm terrified to think of how I would answer that question. Who knows how many idols would come up in my answers before I actually said, I just want you, Jesus. We're told that the man said, Lord... Let me recover my sight. This man declares Jesus to be Lord. There's something much bigger going on than just the restoration of a man's physical eyesight. There's a declaration of Jesus' lordship, the eternal king in the lineage of David. There's a spiritual healing taking place in this moment alongside a physical healing. I love to ask questions like this when I sit in narrative passages. Things like, what do you think this guy was most excited to see? After years and years, God only knows how long it's been since he's seen anything. Maybe he was even born blind. Maybe he was excited to see the sun. After years and years of feeling its warmth on his body, 
now to be able to see the source of that warmth. Maybe it was the countryside to see the the very ground that his feet had been walking for years. Maybe his family. What would you be excited to see after years and years of seeing nothing but darkness? Verse 42, and Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. We're we're told that Jesus heals the man physically. and, And amazingly, the first thing the man sees is what? The face of Jesus. Can you imagine that moment? To go from seeing nothing to seeing the most valuable being in all of the universe. I don't know about you, but I very much look forward to meeting this guy in the new heavens and the new earth. I think he's going to be one of the few I hunt down. I know his name because Mark tells us in his gospel account. It's Bartimaeus. Bart for short. So if you encounter a guy named Bart in the new heavens and the new earth, ask him, are you the Bart from Luke 18? And if he says yes, you buy that guy coffee because you're going to want to hear this story from his, his perspective. It's quite amazing. Can you imagine going from seeing nothing to seeing the most valuable being in all of the universe? If you're a Christian, here's the crazy thing. In some sense, the answer is Yes, because that's exactly what happened when you became a Christian. Colossians 1.13 tells us this. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. 1 Peter 2.9 says it this way. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness... Into his marvelous light. Or perhaps my favorite verse. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says this. For God who said. And this is an allusion to Genesis 1.1. Let light shine out of darkness. Has shone in our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. In other words what Paul's saying there is. Similar to in the beginning, God saying, let there be light in this explosive thing happening at a cosmic level. Out of the darkness, burst forth light. That when you became a Christian, that's exactly what happened to you. That your darkened heart, your darkened mind, your darkened soul had light shone upon it in the form of the face of Christ Jesus. And all of a sudden, boom, you're alive. When you became a Christian, whether you realize it or not, you had a Jericho Road experience. You went from blind, disheveled, impoverished outcast, groping in the darkness for something to hope in, to a child of God with eyes to see and savor the glory of God, the Son of David, Jesus Christ, the eternal King. That the same declaration to the blind man is the declaration to us. As Christians, your faith has made you well. Not your efforts to impress God with your accolades, but your faith. And not just any faith, a faith with its object as Jesus. A faith in the person and work of Jesus. The acknowledge that you're destitute without Jesus. How do we know that there's more than just a physical healing taking place here? Well, we've already notated a, a couple of possibilities. But we also know that the phrase made well here in verse 42... It's from the Greek word sozo, which means to save. So Luke could have easily just, uh, just as easily written, your faith has saved you 
as he recorded your faith has made you well. In fact, the same word is used in Luke 7 in the story of the, the sinful woman with the alabaster flask. You remember that story? The woman who uh, wets Jesus' feet with her tears and anoints uh, his feet with expensive ointment. And at the end of that story, Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. Sozo. Same word as what we find in Luke 18. That when the object of our faith is Jesus, we're saved. We're healed. We're reconciled to the one who made us. We're given hope. We're given a purpose. We're given meaning. Which is what we see in verse 43. As we close out this morning's passage, we're told, And immediately this man recovered his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Here's where the virtue of faithfulness comes to bear. Maybe you've been sitting in your seat going, are we ever going to get to that? The actual virtue? And the answer is yes. You see it right here in verse 43. This guy sees God's faithfulness to him in the face of Christ Jesus. And he declares, Jesus, you're going to have to pry me from your hip. I'm not going anywhere. That's the virtue of faithfulness. It's fidelity. It's loyalty. It's an attaching of yourself to. That's what the gospel does. When you see the king, when you see him on a rescue mission to save you, when you see the extent to which he would go to win you back, it changes you. It changes your affections for him. It deepens the roots of your loyalty to him. You could say it this way. Faithfulness necessarily flows from a faith-filled heart. That if you've been truly saved by Jesus, there will be this desire to walk with Jesus, to stick close to Jesus, to follow Jesus. Will we do it perfectly? No, of course not. Not, not this side of heaven, but there is a fidelity there. There's a, a commitment too. That's what a new heart empowered by the Spirit longs for. Again, we could have so easily gone to one of Paul's letters and just unpacked the do's and don'ts of Christianity and said that's what loyalty looks like. But I think it might be far more helpful for us to see a passage uh, in which uh, the beauty of Jesus bringing sight to the blind compels faithfulness. That's what we need. We need to be people who soak in the beauty of Jesus bringing sight to the blind because that's us. We're the blind man in this story. It's acknowledging that we were blind, that we were disheveled, that we were impoverished, that we were homeless, that we were outcast. I couldn't see. I was groping for something to give me hope, Jesus. Everything left me wanting. And then you. You know the old song? Just like a blind man wandered along, worries and fears I claim for my own. Then like the blind man, God gave back his sight. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. Right? It's the heart singing that, believing that, soaking in that over and over and over again because we're so prone to wander from that. When we soak in the truth of the gospel, it has a way of drawing us in. It has a way of causing uh, this desire for fidelity to, to stir within us. Jesus, wherever you're going, that's where I want to go. Whether I get to be one of those that shuts the mouths of lions or whether I suffer a great deal for your sake, my following you is not contingent upon where the journey takes me. My following you is rooted in a deep desire to simply be where you are. Amen. 
So what can we say in light of the reality that many of us struggle with faith and faithfulness? Coming back to that graphic, I think oftentimes we get it backwards. I think we, we begin with, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going I'm to muster up more faithfulness to God in my own strength. I'm going to modify my behavior. I'm going I'm to get the whiteboard out, and I'm going to strategize some X's and O's, and I'm going to create a, a good game plan, and I'm going to go after it. But oftentimes we do that in our own strength. And so what happens is we then work our way backwards to faith. Our faith is strengthened, but it's not faith in Jesus. It's faith in ourselves. We feel like we're, we're better in the eyes of God because we've mustered something up that makes us look better in his sight. And then what we do is we work our way even further back in this graphic and we go, now you owe me, God. Now you're required to be faithful to me because I've put you in my debt. That's religion. It's not the gospel. If fidelity to God, faithfulness to God, loyalty to God is absent in your life, if infidelity to God is a pattern in your life, the first question to ask is this, working our way back. One, do I have a saving faith in Jesus? Have I been made well like the blind beggar in Luke 18? Have I truly had my collision with deity or have I been living in the land of cultural Christianity running on the treadmill and completely missing the Passover lamb on the way to Passover? If that's you, now is the time to cry out to Jesus like the blind man in Luke 18. Now is the time to declare that you've been groping in the dark. Now is the time to declare, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And not to worry about what people are going to think about you. You might be sitting in this room going, there are a lot of people in this room who think that I'm a Christian. And I don't think that I am. But that's a devastating thought to me to think about actually vocalizing that to anyone. Do you know what the blind beggar in Luke 18 would say to that? Far better to act the fool for the sake of Jesus. If you're not a Christian, my prayer for you, going back to all those passages that we talked about earlier, is that God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, would shine in your heart right now to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. That you would see him for who he truly is. That he would deliver you from the domain of darkness and transfer you to the kingdom of his son. That he would call you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And if he does that, tell somebody. And if you're a Christian, you go, man, I, I'm a Christian. But I struggle with faith. I waver in faithfulness, if I'm honest. And that's all of us, by the way. Whoever says they don't, they're unfaithful by way of their lie. Daily, constantly, we're faced with opportunities to believe or disbelieve the gospel. To buy into the true Savior or functional saviors. To believe the good news of the gospel or anti-gospels that rear their ugly heads on any given day. For the Christian, it all goes back to meditating on and soaking in the wonder of God's faithfulness to us. That that's what strengthens our faith, which produces a harvest of faithfulness. So, here'd be the call to action. If your faith as a Christian and your faithfulness are all over the map, stop looking at you. Start looking at God. 
Start looking at the face of Jesus Christ. Start looking at the son of David who came to make a way for you when there was no way. Start looking at the traces of God's faithfulness all over your life. Get an eyeful of the grace of God. Get an eyeful of the mercy of God. Get an eyeful of the love of God. Which is an exercise you can actually participate in if you're a Christian, right? Getting an eyeful of Jesus because he's giving you eyes to see. Don't waste your God-given vision. Use what you've been given to fix your gaze on Jesus, just like he fixed his gaze on Jerusalem for you. In a moment, we're going to take communion. We do so here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing Jesus' broken body, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, this meal is for you. Uh, momentarily you'll be invited to come down and partake of this meal. As you prepare to do so, uh, again, if you're not a Christian, this is your opportunity to have a blind beggar Luke 18 moment with God, to to just set aside pretenses, to, to set aside externals, and just cry out to him, to act the fool for his sake and for yours. And if you are a Christian Uh, I think probably one of the best exercises going into our time of communion this morning would be this. To simply slow down for just a moment and and to think about, and many of us have multiple ones. I'm not saying just your conversion moment, but to think about a time, maybe even in recent history, because it's it's more uh, readily uh, rememberable to you, um, to, to think about a time when God was unbelievably faithful to you. A time when God brought you through something. A time when God strengthened your faith in the midst of something. Maybe it is when you became a Christian. Going back to that uh, darkness uh, all of a sudden being swallowed up by the light of Christ. And and to allow that to, to move you. To strengthen your faith. To empower you to then go and be the church. And then come when you're ready and, and take of the bread and dip it in the cup. Let me pray for us. God, what a glorious passage. Um, When I read it, I see myself in it unquestionably. Um, I see myself in the crowds. I see myself very religious at times, very much moving on to the next thing, the, the next commentary, the next meeting which no one's going to slap me on the wrist for and say, uh, you need to get your priorities together because it's for the sake of the church. And then at times missing you in all of it. God, I see myself in the blind beggar. Apart from you, I, I have no hope. I have no sight. Apart from you, I'm groping and grasping and at nothing that can actually satisfy me. If I'm honest, I find myself wavering in my faith. I find myself wavering in terms of faithfulness, fidelity, loyalty to you. And so I pray for myself, just like I pray for all these brothers and sisters in this room, that that you would give me an eyeful of your faithfulness to me. I think we all can get an eyeful just by looking at Calvary we follow this story in Luke 18 to its end, we see Jesus dying on a Roman wooden cross for us, bleeding out, absorbing the wrath of the Father in our place. 
That's your faithfulness. Jesus, you came. We couldn't claw our way to heaven. You came down to earth. You bridged the gap we could never bridge, and you gave us hope. You lived the life we could never live. You died our death, and you rose conquering sin and death. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, which gives us any hope of faithfulness to you. We love you, God. We thank you for the gospel. We pray that you would, over the course of the next few minutes, by the power of your spirit, help us to take further steps of faith and repentance. And for those who aren't Christians, I pray that you're drawing them to yourself right now in this moment. Love you, Lord. Lift all these things up in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.